In December 2019, health professionals in Wuhan, China, identified a new severe acute respiratory virus in an individual who had fallen ill. As thousands of people began to contract the virus, thousands turned into hundreds of thousands spread across multiple countries. By February 11th earlier this year, the World Health Organization named this virus COVID-19 and declared this worldwide health crisis a pandemic. As you all know, whole countries were effectively shut down, and for a time, cases begin to continue to rise. They continue to arise today. As of this week, there have been more than 58 million cases worldwide with an estimated 1.3 million COVID-related deaths. And naturally, this has many of us asking, how long? How long is this going to be like this? How long is it gonna take to get a vaccine? How long until we're able to get back to normal? How long until you don't have to wear that mask any longer? Jack and Julie have three kids. They've raised their children in a Christian home, regularly teaching them God's word and seeking to apply it to their hearts. They regularly proclaim the gospel to them. They discipline them according to God's word. When the doors of the church are open, they are there. Sure, they've made their mistakes in parenting, but overall, they've served as an example of what godly parenting looks like. Yet by the time that their oldest child got to high school, they noticed he was running with the wrong crowd. Eventually, he was getting into drugs, into alcohol, and eventually had renounced the faith altogether. These hard months for Jack and Julie turned into years, leaving them crying out to God, how long? How long will our child continue to live in disobedience? How long will our prayers seemingly go unanswered? Maybe for you or for someone close to you, it's an addiction to alcohol, to pornography, to your work, craving the next drink, the next look, the next project, leaving you feeling like you can't live without it, while at the same time longing to get out of it and yet feeling utterly hopeless, as if freedom is a mirage, wondering to yourself, how long? Will I struggle with this addiction forever? Will I ever experience freedom? How long will we go without a child? How long will I weep myself to sleep at night at the loss of my child? At the loss of my father, my mother, my sibling? How long will those I believe to be friends continue to speak about me like I was an enemy? How long will I look back at my life and wonder Did I even make a difference? Was there anything that came from my life? Did I accomplish anything? How long will my memory continue to slip, my capacity to work continue to drag, my body continue to ache? How long? As many throughout church history have noted, if you live long enough, you will suffer. Certainly the biblical authors understood this, 
wondering how long the wicked would prosper and yet seemingly go unpunished, wondering where God is in all of this. It's the same question that King David actually raises this morning in our sermon passage. How long? And yet David doesn't remain there. He lays out a process for moving from turmoil to trust, from pain to praise. He understands that in order to find comfort in pain, we must learn how to put into practice what we believe. Well, if you would, turn with me to Psalm 13. Psalm 13. The Psalms, as I've noted a couple of weeks ago, they served as the public, served as a songbook for the public worship of God's people in Israel. And throughout the Psalter, there are many different types of Psalms. One such category is the Psalm of Lament, which ultimately teaches us how to bring our sorrow, how to bring our pain from this life to God. They teach us how to turn to God as we live between the poles of tragedy and that of triumph. And in Psalm 13, David is lamenting the presence of his enemies in the face of God's seeming absence. Now, we're not given a whole lot of background information in this psalm, but what we do see is that David is crying out for God to deliver him from his enemies, lest he sleep the sleep of death. In this psalm, like much of life, things aren't the way that they should be, nor are they the way that we would hope them to be. But what's most important is how and where we turn in our turmoil. So let's read Psalm 13 together. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul And have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I think the main idea for our psalm this morning is this. Our confidence in conflict rests on God's character. I think it's very simple. I think the main idea for Psalm 13 is that our confidence in conflict rests on God's character. This psalm is really built around three stanzas that move us from the raging storm of David's situation to David then rejoicing and resting in God's salvation. David is showing us how to lament. That's what he's doing. And we're going to consider three stages of David's response to suffering in our three points this morning. They just follow the text. Point number one, our pain and suffering, we'll see that in verses one and two, our pain and suffering, verses one and two. Point number two, our prayer and suffering, verses three and four, our prayer and suffering. And point number three, our praise and suffering. 
See that in verses 5 and 6, our praise and suffering. Point number one, our pain and suffering. Our passage begins with a fourfold cry of how long. Nowhere else in the scriptures do we see such a quick repetition of this phrase, which really shows David's sense of urgency upon God to act. And notice what David is lamenting right here. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David feels utterly abandoned by God. For someone to hide their face from, to to use that term, for someone to hide their face from you speaks to them withholding a sense of their presence from you. They won't turn to you. They won't face you. You don't feel their presence. You see this longing back in Psalm 11, verse 7, where David says that the upright shall behold his face. He wants a sense of his presence And yet he feels like God has utterly forsaken him. Notice that this isn't a recent development. This is not new for David. David wonders if God will forget him. How long right there? How long? In verse 1. Forever. He wonders if God's going to forget him forever. The sorrow in his heart in verse 2 doesn't just come and go. How long is it there? All day long. David's wondering if his situation is ever going to change. And because of this, he feels as if he's left to himself to deal with the raw emotions of anxiety and agony that come with feeling forgotten by God. Due to this isolation, he becomes his own counselor. I mean, just imagine that. The one that you love most forgets you forever. And yet you're left having to counsel yourself. That's brutal. David is communicating the internal struggle that comes with suffering. As if it couldn't get any worse, David's struggle isn't just internal, but it's also external. In verse two, David's battling an enemy within him, but he's also got enemies outside of him. Enemies that seem to be winning victory after victory in their war against him. And now we're told that these We're not told exactly who these enemies are. I think the psalm is intentionally vague because it can apply to a lot of different things. And though David feels utterly abandoned by God, defeated by his enemies, did you notice that he does not stay there? He brings his complaint to the Lord. And that reveals a couple of things. It reveals that David doesn't deny suffering but he recognizes that it exists. Yet, that suffering has an expiration date. It's got an expiration date. Notice what's implied even in the question of how long. How long anticipates a day when suffering will not be here any longer. It will be no more. Yet until that day comes, David understands acutely that this world is not as it ought to be. Ever since Genesis 3, we have been crying out, how long? That's what we've been crying out. Throughout the scriptures, we see that question raised over and over again by the psalmist. Jeremiah, Job, Habakkuk, Elijah, all crying out, how long? But why do they do that? Why do they do that? Because suffering is the result of sin. 
And our sin introduced the chaos of the curse into this creation. David's feeling of abandonment and the sorrow that results from it, the agony of counseling his own soul, the very fact that he has enemies and that those enemies would even oppose God's anointed king, all of these serve as an example that stuff is messed up and it often, it messes with us. David is seemingly hemmed in on every side, hemmed in internally, hemmed in externally with enemies outside of him, But there's also another thing that David's complaint reveals. It reveals that human pain and suffering don't disprove God's power and sovereignty. Why else would David bring his complaint to God if he didn't believe that God had the power to deliver him? He cries out to God because he knows that suffering is not ultimately king. Ultimately, God reigns as king. There is one who stands above suffering and by his power can actually deliver from it. David is not giving us a quick fix. He's showing us how to grieve biblically. He's showing us what to do when what we believe about God and how we feel about God are actually at odds with one another. Maybe you've felt like David before. Maybe you feel like David right now wondering how much longer you can take this pain, how much longer you can take this suffering, asking yourself, wondering, where in the world is God in all of this? Asking yourself, how long will I carry this grief that comes with losing a loved one or a child? How long will this depression remain just a dark cloud that just seemingly never lifts? How long will people continue to speak falsely against me in order to prop themselves up? How long will I be mocked as an outcast in our society for being faithful to God's word? That pain of isolation, that pain of loneliness that you feel in your suffering can over time actually make that grief and sorrow feel worse. You feel stuck in this rut of grief And that grief, if we're not careful, can actually turn into despair. It can turn into hopelessness. When days turn into months and months turn into years, you begin to feel that God isn't necessarily against you, but he's not really for you either. Our feelings can often contradict what we objectively know to be true about God. We might say objectively that God is near, but in suffering, it often doesn't feel that way. I mean, after all, suffering affects everything. And brothers and sisters, I think it's important for us to recognize the reality of our suffering rather than trying to deny it. Living in denial won't change anything. In fact, it only prolongs your pain. Neither do we want that denial actually to move us from anger, from denial toward anger at God because we don't get what we want and we want what we don't get Anger at God only moves us further away from God. Instead, we draw near to God by doing exactly what David is doing. We draw near to God by lamenting the way things are because they weren't the way that God created them to be. As one pastor said, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. 
in a lament, we draw near to God by bringing our complaint to him. Now, you may be wondering, well, didn't, didn't the Israelites get 40 years in the wilderness for complaining to God? Yes, they did. <laughs> However, there's a difference between godly complaint and ungodly complaint. It's been said before that biblical lament complains to God about the fallen world. Complains to God about the fallen world, whereas unbiblical lament complains about God and accuses him of lacking goodness and holiness and wisdom. And so when you find yourself asking the same question as David, you don't have to fret. You're not strange. You're not weird. You're not alone. You actually stand in a long line of God's people throughout the ages, lamenting the effects of the fall on their very lives. In fact, a third of the Psalter are laments more than any other category. Lament. And as we see with David in verses one and two, we approach God in our suffering by bringing our complaints to him. We lament by being honest with the Lord about our pain. That's a hard thing to do. Why? Why is that so hard? It's a hard thing to do because when we come before the Lord honestly, we have to open up those wounds all over again. We've got to open them up. And often that hurts. I mean, just look at David. David does not look like he's having a wonderful time in his pain. But the stakes for him could not be higher. He speaks like his own life is at stake. Bringing our hurt to the Lord will hurt, yet it's necessary to heal. And God in his kindness has given us the biblical category of lament to be like a surgeon who uses his scalpel to heal his patient, not to hurt the patient. Being honest with the Lord takes humility because we're recognizing we cannot heal we cannot save, we cannot fix, we cannot cure ourselves. In suffering, God may feel far off, yet in complaint, we then begin to move as the beginning stage of drawing near to God and feeling his presence once again. So brothers and sisters, be honest with the Lord about your, about your pain. Bring your complaints to God. Write those complaints down. Write your questions down. What is it that, you're, that you are wrestling with? What are you suffering through? Writing it down helps to actually give clarity to your situation. And then bring that lament to the Lord as the biblical authors give you words to express that lament. It's not unfaithful to grieve or to complain to God. It would actually be unfaithful to not go to God at all. Friend, though you may feel alone, you're not. Because God has given you his people to help recover a sense of his presence. And this can happen by letting others in on your pain. One of the best things for you is maybe to gather a group of people that you trust, that you can speak to, that you can open up with and be honest about your grief. To be honest with them about your pain. Who are those that you trust in to listen to you to actually speak truth to you in your pain. We can't carry one another's burdens and sorrows alone if we don't know about each other's burdens and sorrows. 
right? We can't carry one another's burdens and sorrows if we don't know of one another's burdens and sorrows. God has given us one another to speak his word into our pain so that we might praise him again. So let others in so that you may be helped out. Well, David isn't just posting up in the valley with his questions. We don't just complain just to complain. There is a purpose to lament. It's to move us in time to praise. But before we get there, we need to make our request known to God. Point number two, our prayer in suffering. David just raised his complaint to God in verses one and two. And now in verses three through four, he turns to asking God for something. Notice the three things that he asked for right here. He asked the Lord to consider him, to answer him, to light up his eyes, lest he sleep the sleep of death, which is just another way of saying, restore my strength, restore my life. And did you notice that each thing that he asked for actually serves as the counter to the questions that he raises in verses one and two. What he feels in verses one and two, he now takes to the Lord in verses three through four. The things that he complains about, he now prays for. In verse one, David feels as if the Lord is hiding his face for him. So what does he ask from the Lord in verse three? He says, hey, look over here. Look at me. Turn your face toward me. Consider me. Again, David complains about the sorrow of taking counsel in his own soul, and so he asks God to answer him. He's tired of looking inwardly. He wants to look outwardly to God to give him an answer. Finally, in verse 1, David complains of his enemies triumphing over him, and yet in verse 3, he calls upon God to deliver him from his enemies so his enemies would not have the final word against him. David prays, for the things that he laments. But why does he pray the way that he does? Why does he pray this way? Not only because his life is at stake, but because God's very reputation is at stake. David is God's anointed king. He represented God to the people and the people to God. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord made a covenant with David to give him an everlasting kingdom with the son that would sit on his throne forever. And so for David's enemies to prevail over him would actually call God's character into question. The stakes are high. The difficulties of this life haven't driven David to despair, but rather to further dependence on the Lord. And so he turns to the only one who can save him from his situation. But notice that as he does that, he's not trying to manipulate God into giving him what he wants as if prayer were just a ladder to earn God's favor. He's not trying to manipulate him. Neither is he trying to bargain with God. If you just save me, then I'll do this for you, as if prayer were some kind of debtor's ethic to God. Instead, David is really just asking God to answer his complaint according to his character. David may feel forsaken by God, but he knows Deuteronomy 31, 6, that God will not leave nor forsake his people. He knows Psalm 34, verses 17 through 18, that when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. His prayer shows what he believes about God's character, 
Suffering is going to bring pain. But God's character ought to drive us to pray. After all, he wouldn't call on God to consider him, to answer him, to deliver him if he didn't really believe that God cared for him, that God heard him, and that God could save him. His prayer reflects what he believes, which is exactly what prayer is. Prayer is our faith being expressed to God. It's how our faith really goes public to God. As it's been said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. It reveals how dependent we are upon the Lord and how deeply we long for fellowship with him. For David, this is deeply personal to him. This is his God. This is my God in verse 3. He knows the one that he prays to. And he is completely dependent upon him to do what he cannot. Brothers and sisters, when you feel the enemies of this world surrounding you, where do you turn? Who or what do you cry out for to numb your pain? Do you seek to self-medicate your pain in order to tune it out? Do you turn to pornography, to alcohol, another relationship, maybe binge-watching your favorite show? Do you turn to those things to distract you? Do you throw yourself into your work in order just to silence it or to try to silence it? Do you look to your spouse, to your kids, in order to replace it? Each of these will only prolong and deepen suffering in your life. Yet bringing your pain to God in prayer can lead in time to peace. One of the unique things about prayer is that it reminds us of what is true about God. And how we bring that truth to bear in our circumstances is bringing that truth to God in prayer. So friends, have you considered not just being honest with God about your grief, but specifically crying out to him and pleading him to step in and to act? Rather than looking to other things to medicate your pain, do you trust him enough and believe that he is near to the brokenhearted? Do you believe that his heart is there to help? The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that because we have a sinless and sympathetic high priest who can relate to our temptations, we can now approach the throne of grace with confidence and we can receive mercy. We can receive grace to help us in our time of need. How does that happen though? How does that happen? Hebrews chapter 7. Because our sympathetic high priest lives to intercede for us in every way so that our faith may not fail. Just as that sympathetic high priest, Jesus himself, prayed for Peter in Luke 22. We don't have to come to the Father based upon our own strength because we come to the Father based upon the strength of his Son. The difficulties of life, they don't have to push you away from the Lord but can actually draw you in because our pain does not deafen God's ear, nor does it keep his ear closed off to our prayer. We can come confidently because Christ stands sympathetically interceding for us eternally. This is why praying together is so important. There's gonna be times when pain is so deep that you don't know what to pray. You don't know how to pray. And yet, as you participate in the prayers on Sunday morning, Sunday night, the Wednesday night prayer group, as you participate in that, the prayers of God's people begin to give words 
to what you're feeling. They help to process your pain. Praying together reinforces what you already know to be true about God. It informs what you should be praying for. And it helps us see that we're not alone in our struggle. It combats that lack of desire to pray when pain is present. As others have said, we learn how to speak not by reading dictionaries, but by hearing others speak. We learn to pray by hearing others pray. In the same way, gather to pray so that you may know how and what to pray. Prayer begets prayer. Prayer begets prayer. The more you do it, the more your dependence and desire for the Lord will grow. And the more that you will move closer into his presence. You will feel that presence. Well, just as it takes faith to go to the Lord in prayer while in pain, so also it takes faith to trust in God's character when circumstances may lead you to believe otherwise. Point number three, our final point, our praise in suffering. Our praise in suffering. Now we come really to the major turning point in this psalm. And it happens with the first word in verse five. But, but, that's a glorious word. Though suffering may tell David to believe something else, David doesn't retreat. Instead, he trusts. And notice how he describes this trust in verse five. He says, I have trusted. Not I will trust, but I have trusted. David isn't waiting on a sign from God because God has already shown himself faithful. Trusting is a continual state of being. It's a posture of heart. And look at what he's trusting in right here. He says, in your steadfast love, though it may look like David's life seems to be coming to an end, God's love is unfailing. His love does not. His love speaks to his covenantal love toward his people. It's that over-the-top kind of love that is able to keep promises and goes beyond what's required. That steadfast love is a love that creates and sustains his covenant, though we fail to keep that covenant. Not only does faith trust in God's steadfast love, but it's also confident in the Lord's salvation. David says in his heart right here, he says that his heart shall rejoice in your salvation, in God's salvation. David hasn't experienced this promise of salvation yet. You do recognize that. He hasn't experienced it yet. And yet in his waiting, he's rejoicing. He's singing in verse six. And why does he do that? Because God has dealt bountifully with him in verse six. David has gone from feeling abandoned by God in verse one to now believing God has dealt bountifully with him in verse six. David has men ready to take his life and yet he seems like he is the most secure man on the face of the planet. His trust is active because God has acted on his behalf. He rejoices, he sings to the Lord because this is the God who delivered him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, who delivered him from the hand of Goliath and the Philistines, from the hand of Saul and the hand of those who betrayed him among his own people. God's track record of faithfulness to David in the past 
grounds his confidence in the present, in, grounds his confidence in the present as he waits on God to act in the future. God's track record of faithfulness to David in the past grounds his confidence in the present as he waits on God to act in the future. Friends, this kind of response to suffering is completely and utterly counter to the way that the world suffers. Praise doesn't feel natural whenever we're in pain. And more often than not, we'd rather point the finger at God rather than give him praise from when we experience loss. We'd rather recount the ways that he's given us what we don't want than rejoicing in getting what we don't deserve. In Mark 9, Jesus descends the mountain of transfiguration to his disciples, arguing with the religious leaders about a lack of ability to heal a boy with an, with an evil spirit. And Jesus says to them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Later he asked the father of the boy with the evil spirit, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus embodies lament at the deepest level, lamenting the faithlessness of God's people through their lack of prayer in a world with demonic influence. He embodies lament when he feels the full darkness and weight of being forsaken by the Father on the cross. And yet, like David, who rejoices in a salvation he has yet to see, well, in a different way, Jesus who for the joy, the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He rejoiced in the forgiveness of sins that he secured through his death and resurrection for all who would repent of their sin and trust in him. He was forsaken that you might not be forsaken. His joy was that we might have him who embodied our lament so that one day that lament would come to an end. Our praise in pain is Christ. That's the point. Our praise in pain is Christ. On this side of the cross from David, we get to look back at God's proof of his steadfast love for us in Christ, which gives us confidence now as we wait for our future salvation. We can complain to the Lord. We can pray to the Lord. We can trust the Lord. We can rejoice and we can sing to the Lord because God has dealt bountifully with us. So friends, would you say that David's response to suffering describes your own? Does your faith respond to pain by trusting, by rejoicing, and by singing of God's goodness to you in Christ? The truth is, this may actually take a long time. It may take a while. But as we recount God's faithfulness to us, we begin to move from pain to praise. We begin to move from turmoil to trust. And thankfully, we're not alone in that process. One of the graces of God to us is us. <laughs> it's one another. After all, this isn't just a lament of David, but was to be sung by all of those whom the king represented. In aviation, pilots from time to time, you can ask Tom Smolin about this, pilots from time to time may experience spatial disorientation. 
which makes it difficult to correctly judge altitude and airspeed in relation to the earth. However, when this happens, the pilot is taught to trust his instruments and his training to prevent the flight from being fatal. One of the graces of God to us in suffering is one another. And when the storms of this life disorient us, we have each other to encourage us to trust in the instruments of God's word to weather the storms of life. We hold on to those instruments as we gather to hear God's word preached together, to pray together, to see baptism in the Lord's Supper together, to sing together like David. Just by being present, we place ourselves in a position for others to recount the wonderful works of God to us, to press the truth of God's word deeper into our hearts, though our experience feels different at times. This is why we sing, God moves in a mysterious way. Oh God of mercy, hear our plea. That's why we sing these songs. And so friend, if you're here and you're hurting this morning, praise God you showed up. Praise God that you're here. Though this life disorients you, God's word is here to bring stability to your soul. And one of the means of converting your pain to praise is God's people. So friend, you have much to rejoice in this morning because Christ has conquered the grave and he has adopted you into his family. You are his. There's much for you to rejoice in this morning. However, if you're living a life outside of Christ this morning, understand that you're aligning with the king's enemies within the text. Outside of Christ, you're truly forsaken and hopeless, and your pain will never finally pivot to praise, but instead eternal punishment because of your sin. But that pivot, that turn right there, can actually happen to you by turning to Christ who prevailed over your sin, who triumphed over God's enemies through his death and resurrection. Turn and trust in him to secure for you what you cannot secure outside of Christ. Turn and trust in him who can be your praise in pain. Well, David has shown us that the truths of scripture aren't to be just stored away and locked up when the tragedies of life hit. Instead, they're to be applied to those tragedies, that our comfort and confidence rest on God's character and that our pain pivots to praise on his promises. However, there is one final hard reality with this psalm, and it's that God may not relieve your suffering immediately. He does not work on our timetable. He may not relieve your suffering immediately. So what happens when your situation just remains the same? After all, David doesn't get an answer from God, and you might not either, and it may actually compound that pain in your suffering. In our scripture reading a moment ago, we read that the souls of the martyrs underneath the altar of God cry out to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In response, the souls of these deceased saints, are, they're given white robes signifying victory, and yet they're told to wait. They're told to wait 
a little longer for their vindication. In our psalm, David is showing us how to wait on the Lord in our suffering because in this life, your scar may not go away, but neither does his. He understands, he cares, and he is there, as it's been said. Your suffering is not wasted because Christ has won. He slept the sleep of death for you so that you wouldn't have to. Instead, let your suffering give clarity to God's character and actually deepen your confidence in God to act. Because one day soon, that trumpet is going to sound. Christ is going to return. Evil will be destroyed. Everything will be made new. Every tear will be wiped away from your eye. And you will behold his face. Not for a moment, but for all eternity. And yet, until then, we lift up a cry of trust to God. Come, Lord Jesus, come. You have a great hope this morning, brothers and sisters. Remind yourself of that from Psalm 13. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give praise to you because of your steadfast love toward us in Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We deserved otherwise. And yet you, in your mercy and in your grace, won for us what we could not win for ourselves. Father, we praise you that we have one another to be able to guide us, to help us, come honestly before you about our pain. We praise you that your ear is open to our pain in prayer. And Lord, we praise you that you do have an answer for us, that you do understand what it means to endure pain in your son. And so Father, we give praise to you as we wait on our salvation. Help us to rejoice and sing to you because you have dealt bountifully with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.